I want to give a couple heads up. Next week, or this is our service times for the next uh, week or so. One, we have Christmas Eve services, which are in a few days here, 5 p.m. and 11 p.m. That 5 p.m. service, we will have child care up into the age of two, three-year-olds and, and um, older. They will be here with us, and so we will have fun for that. The 11 p.m., we will have no child care, and so all our, our, our older children's ministry, which is usually the 20-somethings, they'll be here with us on the 11 p.m. service, and so looking forward to that. The Sunday, so next Sunday, week from today, we will only have morning services again, 9.30 and 11, and then the first Sunday of the year, we will have three services, 9.30, 11 a.m., as well as 5 p.m., um, also, today, given that it's a conclusion of our Advent series and Advent as a season, we will be collecting our Advent offering. Um, some of you are new and, and you, you haven't been following along with us, and so what we do uh, normally here is that at the end of the year, or the Advent offering, we, we raise a special offering above and beyond our normal tithes and offering that goes outside of us as a congregation. And so uh, the three areas that we are collecting for today uh, is going to be international fund, and that's specifically going to go towards uh, caring for and providing resources for Iraqi uh, refugees. Um, the second thing is Maggie's Place. And Maggie's Place is um, not a shelter, but it's a home for expecting homeless mothers. And so mothers throughout the city of Phoenix that are, that are homeless, that they provide a home for them and care and resources for them, their children, and et cetera. And so a um, portion of the money will go there. And then lastly is a redemption, foster care, and adoption. And Redemption, Foster Care, and Adoption has kind of two strands. One is for the ministry that we have on our whole church to address the crisis that we have here in Arizona, the thousands of kids that are in the foster care system, as well as AZ-127, which is a, a collection of churches throughout the state of Arizona that are also looking to address um, and meet the needs of that crisis. And so of the offering that we'll have immediately following the sermon, it will go towards, that, towards there. So the way that we do that is we will pass a basket, which is something that is foreign to us. We only do that on a special offering. And so just wanted to give you the heads up so that you go, oh, great, I came to church and they're asking for money. Um, so we didn't want to disappoint you because you probably thought that coming in anyway. So we're going to, as long as we're saying is it's going to go, this particular offering is going to go outside of us. So let's jump into the series. So if you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 21. Um, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip your hand up. And keep it raised really high, and then one of our ushers will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Revelation chapter 21, which we just uh, heard read beautifully. Um, we're going we're gonna to be there. So if you don't know where Revelation chapter 21 is, go to the last page of your Bible, um, and that's where to be. Um, we're going to look at chapters 21, 1 through 8. However, in order to get there, as you turn to Revelation 21, it's going to take us a while to, to, to kind of get to the very end of the Bible. Um, I don't want to just jump in and go, Here, here's in the Bible. It's like walking at the very end of a movie, right? Uh, you ever had that experience? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You walk in, you have no context of the movie, and you're like, this is it. It's it, it over. It's like catching fire. Is there more to this? Like, what's going on, right? And so there, 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 is, there is this sense where we do need to unpack this story. So here's where we started at. Week one, we were been talking about the return of the king. And the return of the king is the return of Jesus Christ establishing his kingdom. And so week, week one, we talked about how the kingdom of God, this kingdom is near. And Jesus says at any moment, he can come and he can restore all things. And then week two, we said the kingdom is his. And so the kingdom belongs to Jesus. He is the one who is the uh, authority. He's the one who is sovereign over all things. And then last week, we talked about thy kingdom come. Looking primarily in, in the Lord's Prayer, when he asked us, Jesus, to pray that his kingdom would come into the different areas of our life and our city and our community and our culture and our world. And then this week is the forever kingdom. 
looking finally at a kingdom that will be established, looking to that day when Jesus Christ will establish and reign and renew and purify this world, and the people who follow Christ and place their faith in Christ will be with him for all eternity. But before we can even get into that, we have to understand this kingdom and how this kingdom reveals itself through the unfolding scriptures that we have before us. Um, and so Three things, four things actually we're going to look at today. And one is the promise of this kingdom. Number two is the obscurity of this kingdom, like how Jesus enters into this world. Number three is the inauguration of this kingdom, how we now begin to live into this kingdom. And number four is the forever kingdom. So before we jump in, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the great grace that's been extended to us through Christ. God, we thank you for all the beautiful things in which we have. All the gifts from you, Lord, from the gift of salvation in Christ to the gift of family to the beautiful children that you've brought into this congregation, Lord, we ask that your hand and your blessing would be upon them, that you'd raise them in the ways of Christ. God, as we look to your word and look to the whole story of how your kingdom has been unfolding and we look toward the day in which it will reign forever, God, would you give us an anticipation and give us hope in your son, Christ. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we've had this experience before. Many of you have had this experience before where um, there's someone that you, you want to date or you're supposed to date, right? More like you're supposed to date, right? Either your parents say this is the type of guy you're supposed to date or your, your, your pastor, youth pastor, or maybe you've read about the characteristics of the Bible and, and you're supposed to date this guy or this girl. And, and you know, like you, you, maybe you go on a date and in your mind you're going, I know I'm supposed to like this type of person, but I don't, Right? I don't really, really like, you know, like, that's the person I know I'm supposed to be with, but there's probably some rebel somewhere that you really, really want to be with. I feel like we have that same, that same feeling when it comes to our understanding of heaven, right? Because we have this weird understanding of heaven, and usually it's like, hey, we're going to be with Jesus forever, and there's going to be, like, worship song after worship song after worship song. You're like, that's usually when I leave. Um, and so I, I don't know, when I, like, okay, I'm supposed to be in heaven. Yeah, I really want heaven when internally, like, I don't want to just stay here, and if this place got better, I'd just kick it here for a while, right? That's the reality. I remember being at a men's conference, and the, the pastor that was there, um, and I was a young Christian, and he was doing this charge of, like, seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus. And he says, imagine this. He goes, imagine you were all in heaven, and in heaven there's no more back pain, and in heaven there's no more um, heartaches, your knees work well. It was a very, very um, not, uh, it, was a, it was a conference mainly for older men, and I was going, my knees my knees are all right, right? And, um, and he goes, but imagine, right? All your closest friends are there. Your family's there. Imagine everything's good and it lasts forever. Every joke is pure and funny and good. He goes, would you want to be there? We're like, yeah, we want to be there. And he goes, can you imagine having all of those things, but Jesus wouldn't be there? Would you still want to be there? And everyone's like, no. And I'm in the back going, yeah, dang it. <laughs> no, right? You're kind of like, yeah, I do want that. And the reason why we have that is, is because we have this separation of secular and sacred. We have this dualism that the Bible doesn't even present to us. And the Bible actually unfolds the best of both, right? So here's, here's what we have. On one sense, we have a group of people that want the king, but at the exclusion of the kingdom, and what that means is we talk about Jesus, we talk about how we need him, how he's died on the cross for our sins, how he's resurrected from the grave, and by faith we can have eternal life with him. Beautiful teaching. And so maybe we teach people how to read their Bibles and how to pray and how to be really good men and women who follow Christ. Beautiful. But we don't talk much about the material world. 
and how Christ cares about the things that we do with our hands and our vocations and our family, how those things matter. I mean, what happens is we major on the spiritual, but we don't care about the material that much. And that's a king without a kingdom. Now, on the flip side, you have people who major on the kingdom and talk about how broken this world is. And usually you begin to see a lot of the, the systemic things that are wrong with our world and the injustice and so forth. And you want to address those things, but you do it at the exclusion of a king. And so you don't have the, the power of the gospel. There's not an there's not a, a importance and value on the need of faith in Christ Jesus and Christ alone and his blood, how it, it reconciles us to God and how it forgives us of our sins. And so you have a high emphasis on the material without the spiritual. But when you read your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, what we have is, is no such separation, that we have a king whose name is Jesus, who we do believe in, who did die on the, on the cross for our sins. Who, did, who was raised from the grave three days later by his father, and that we now receive the Holy Spirit to be able to walk with this king, and one day we will be in a material world of which there will be no back pain and no knee pain and, and all the other stuff, but we will also be able to have Jesus. When we begin to understand that's what God's doing with his kingdom, most of us go, yeah, I want that. I, I really want that. And the reason why you want that is because here's what the Bible says. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. Whether you know and love and follow Jesus this morning or not, there is something in you that longs for that. You may not say Christ is the way, but there's something that longs for that because it's been born in us. And what we see in the scriptures is that this, was, this kingdom was something that was promised. This kingdom came in such a way that makes it obscure. It's not the way that we think about normal kingdoms. And then it's inaugurated through Christ and it will last forever. And so let's first start with this promise of the kingdom. Um, when you read through the Bible, you realize the Bible in itself, the story of this world, begins with God, first and foremost. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. The Father loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Son, etc. Out of their overflow of love for one another, God creates this world. And he creates this material world in the context of which he would dwell with those whom he desires to share this love with, and that is the apex of his creation, and that is humanity. And the first humans were Adam and Eve. And they were placed inside the garden to have relationship and fellowship with God in the material world. God told them one thing not to do, and that is not to eat from the forbidden fruit. And now the problem that we do have in the very beginning is there's a serpent there that's an evil serpent and begins, we don't know how it got there, um, we don't know what God was doing in it, but it's there, and the serpent begins to deceive Adam and Eve. Now oftentimes you say, well, Eve was the first one who sinned, and that was Adam. The Bible says, Adam, listen, they both sinned, Right? All the women were like, yeah, but, you know, it was, it was, Eve was just trying to do her thing, and she was oppressed by her husband. And all the guys were like, man, he was just chilling. He was trying to have a good time. And it's like, okay, here's what happened. They both sinned. First, you have the serpent who's talking to Eve. Eve's sin was a sin of commission, something you do. She committed the sin. She ate the fruit. Adam's sin was that of omission. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Adam should have been sitting there saying, hey, girl, um, we don't talk to talking snakes, Right? Like, let's go, right? Like, there should have been something there, but Adam's sitting right next to her, and she eats the fruit, and she hands it to Adam, and he eats into it, and then what we have is now evil begins to enter into not only just the serpent, but to our hearts and all of creation. And so sin begins to lay on top of everything that God had just said is good, good, good. All the creation, he said, it's very good, it's very good, it's very good. And sin just kind of lays on top of it. Cornelius Plankton Jr., he talks about sin in a way that I think is helpful. When you think about sin, not just our hearts, but sin in itself 
begins to affect all things. And so sin is like a parasite that latches onto what is good. And so evil begins to spread. But here's the promise. The first promise that we begin to hear about, about this gospel, happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God is giving curses to the man and to the woman because of their sin, and then he speaks to the serpent and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. And what we have here is, if you were here last week when we showed the video, there's this picture here that at some point that the way God is going to redeem, the way God is going to enter in and crush evil is he's going to work through humanity. And that the woman will have a seed and the serpent will try to, through evil, strike his heel. And then ultimately the woman's seed will crush his head. And you have this promise of saying God's not going to renege on his plan to love and to share his life and love with us. And so the Bible begins to unfold. We see this promise pick up most clearly in Genesis chapter 12 when he chooses the man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, you're going to have a family and your family and through your family, I'm going to bless every other family or every other nation. So there's this picture of every nation and every tribe being able to be unfolded into the plan of God and what he's doing to rescue and renew. And Abraham's family, if you get a chance to read through Genesis, it's just a dysfunctional family um, over and over and over again, which all of us go, oh, like my family, right? Yes, that family. But it was through that family that God said he was going to bless. It was through that family that there was going to be a king. And we see the succession of kings. The greatest king that we, we think about is King David. But King David in himself is not perfect because the same sin that's in you and me was in David. And David expressed it um, that we begin to see in First and Second Samuel that David begins to sin in a way as a king should never sin. And he sleeps with a woman that's not his wife and he tries to cover up and murders her husband and we go, that, that, that's not good. And then the people of God and continuous rebellion and sin against God, they find themselves in exile. But during exile, God began to purify them. He began to reveal himself. And after they came back from exile, back to Jerusalem, they began to wait for this promise. And that's the story of the Old Testament. At the very end of the Old Testament, there's this thought of saying, okay, David couldn't do it, Abraham couldn't do it, Judah couldn't do it, no one can do it. Who is going to be the one that's going to reconcile and redeem? And what we have is it's none other than God himself. So we go the promise of this kingdom, and then we have the obscurity in it because he comes in the most obscure way. In fact, the prophets during the time of the exiles begin to speak about this king who would come. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in the most obscure ways, this king comes into the world. And I love the Christmas story. The Christmas story, a lot of times, we, we, we get lost in with our idea of Christmas and the colors and the bells and the trees and, and everything else, the sport coats, everything we do during, during Christmas, right? We get lost, to, lost in it. When Christmas came at a time and in a place where the king came in the most obscure ways, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an artist who grew up himself in the African-American Episcopal Church, a black church, um, wanted to begin to paint this picture of Mary. And so what he did was he actually went to uh, Jerusalem for a while, spent time there to get his best idea, a view of what Mary, the position that Mary would have been in. And, and, and his, la his last name is, uh, his name is Hen Tanner Henry or Henry Tanner. Um, and this is the picture that he has, which is beautiful. One, because it was unconventional at the time, um, because Ma Mary actually looks like a 13-year-old girl who's poor, because Mary was a 13, around a 13-year-old girl 
who was poor. <laughs> and the picture of this obscurity is, if, if, if you're God and you're going to enter in the world, do you pick someone like Mary? Not in our idea, but God's like, yeah. A 13-year-old girl who's never been with a man, who's engaged to be uh, married to Joseph, and then she's the one that's going to bear the Savior. Let's go even further than this story how obscure it is because I think it relates to us. Christmas time has the ability to bring out the crazy in people, <laughs> right? It does. Um, you get families together, but when families get together, stuff comes up. Christmas time is a hard time for many of us because it's during this time that we, that we remember there's people who will no longer spend Christmas with us anymore. Christmas time brings up things that we don't want to talk about. And so think about the original Christmas with Mary. So you have this 13-year-old girl who's pregnant, who's never been with the man. He's trying to tell her husband, hey, I'm pregnant, and I know we've never been together, but I haven't been with anybody else. Joseph's like, no. <laughs> so he's going to quietly divorce her. And I think you go, wow, so divorce is being talked around around Christmas time? We've experienced that. Many of us in the room have experienced that. Now, God reveals himself to Joseph and was like, hey, you should believe your wife. And they stay, and we know the story, but there's this, there's this obscurity. And then Christ comes into the world, and he's born. And he's born in a manger, and there's smelly donkeys, and the smell just is terrible. We, we thought in this moment of the sermon we should release the smell um, <laughs> just so you guys would know. But it's like, oh, we got the six-month babies out of here already, right? And so there's, there's, there's this sense of that's, that's the obscurity. And then Jesus himself, he grows up. No one really knows who he is. He's from a place called Nazareth, and people are like, does anything any good come from Nazareth? They don't, like, Jesus didn't grow up with prestige. Like, he wasn't all-city Nazareth on the basketball team or anything like that. It's like, does anything good come from Nazareth? It was like the equivalent of, of Gila Bend, right? They're like, he's from the Gila Bend of Jerusalem. They're like, we just drive through there to San Diego, right? Or whatever the equivalent of San Diego was for Jerusalem. Like, it's just very obscure, and yet he comes into this world as God's son to redeem the world, this king. And what I love about this is God is the one who wrote this story. He could have said, listen, if I'm going to enter into this world, at least put me up in, like, the nice area, right? I mean, put me in the Awatuki version, right? I don't, I don't want to be in the Gila Bin, right? But no, because it's very obscure. He begins to show forth his kingdom, and he says things like, it's like a mustard seed. You're not going to really understand it, but watch it grow. And you see this all the way to the point of death that this baby who was born to die, to death. And the interesting part about that is now the, the Jewish people are going, wait a minute, we were looking for power, 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 and then our king, the one who says he's the king, he's on the cross. And on the cross, we begin to see that was Satan's idea that he thought was going to be able to strike his heel. But God had a bigger and better plan. That on the cross, that Jesus was dying for the sin of the world. Every single man, every single woman, every single child that every single thing that has corrupted this world and evil and sin and brokenness, that he was beginning to bear the wrath of sin of mankind upon himself. And that, that this Jesus was going to this cross ultimately to inaugurate his kingdom. This kingdom that was promised, this kingdom that came in in obscurity that people didn't understand, that there now was going to be this inauguration because through his death and only through his death that we may receive the forgiveness of sins. And then for three days, Jesus in the tomb finally is resurrected, as God had promised, that there would be hope for the world. And the reason why this becomes the inauguration of this kingdom is because Jesus becomes for us a new representative. There was an old representative who was Adam, 
And in Adam, who failed and who sinned, now sin and death reign in our lives as well. And now this new representative in Jesus, who by faith we believe in, he represents this one, as the Bible talks about it in a few metaphors. The first one is he is the firstborn. And the firstborn was the one who would be the elder brother, who all the younger brothers and sisters, those of us who trust in Christ, will follow him. The second metaphor is that of first fruits. In the ancient agricultural world, they would have the first fruit would begin to pop up, and that would give them the confidence that the rest of the fruit was to come, the rest of the harvest. Well, when Jesus raises from the dead, that we knew that there's going to be more to come. There's going to be more life, and that our dead bodies will be raised, and that we will, ha- we will reign with God in a material world, in a material land. And then lastly, we see in Hebrews, that of a pioneer, that he's a trailblazer who is going to a place that we have never been, and that if we follow him, that we will be where he is at. And he inaugurates that kingdom. And he leaves us here with the Holy Spirit. And he says, just wait. And he fills the church with the Holy Spirit to continue to testify to this promise, to testify to the obscurity of how we live in our life, to be able to testify that the way that this kingdom is inaugurated, the way that it's here is through the death and the resurrection of Christ by the Spirit, and then to also point towards this forever kingdom, which is where we'll look at at this last part here in Revelation 21. Jesus' good friend, the Apostle John, um, follows around Jesus. This is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, who also wrote uh, the letters of John, and now writes Revelation. And what I love about John and his perspective is that John goes from just being known as John, and that whenever you hear him writing about himself, he no longer refers to himself as his name, but he understands his position. Because he no longer says, I'm John. He always refers to himself as the one in whom Jesus loved. And at first sight, I sort of think, how arrogant is John, right? As if Jesus didn't love anybody else, right? But John is just going, no, I just forever want to know my position. I am, as in everybody else, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. Well, this John in the book of Revelation is now exiled away from people because he loves Jesus so much. He's on an island, and God begins to reveal himself, and he writes all the things in Revelation, which we don't have enough hours to go through. Um, but he gets to Revelation 21, in which God begins to reveal to him this forever kingdom and what God is doing. And here's what he says, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. The first thing that John begins to say here is, I saw something new. That word new there is a Greek word, kainos. It's not new chronologically. Think of it like this. It's not if you had a 2003 Civic, and then you got the 2004, then you got the new one, right? That it's not new in its kind. It's something completely different. Meaning what we know for the world to be, that there's going to be this new restoration of things. That there will be continuity, the things that will pass into it, and there will be discontinuity. There will be things that we have never seen, never experienced. And he's trying to explain it in words that he has, the only the best thing that he can describe it as. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. He's just trying to say, okay, I saw this city, Jerusalem, coming down. And, and he tries to describe, it's so beautiful. And he's trying to think, okay, what's the most beautiful thing? And normally we go to babies, right? And he goes, no, the birth of a baby is amazing and it's cool, but it still looks like a lizard. I'm not going to use that. <laughs> what am I going to describe this? And he describes the wedding day. He goes, oh, like a bride, right? Because those of us who, especially guys who've been married, you've, seen, you've, you've been there where what I will do with, with the guys who, um, who I'm doing their wedding, I will say, hey, how about you look at me until, so you don't see your wife, you, you know, and when she comes in, and then you can go from this grill to beauty, right? 
Like, look at me, look at me, and then turn around, right? Because you, you, you've been there before. You're up there, and you're standing, and all of a sudden those doors open, and you're like, yeah, right? <clears throat> Put it back together, right? And there's this beautiful moment there. And he says, it's kind of like that, that there's going to be this sense of straight beauty because of the king that he's renewing and he's restoring and he's purifying this world. The king is doing this. This is him. This is Jesus. And he continues, and he says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. John gets it. John says, I hear this, 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 this voice. Many people think it's an angelic voice saying, Hey, here's what's happening. God is dwelling with them. In the Old Testament, you have this same word that was used for the tent or the tabernacle where God's presence would be and that people would have to travel to in order to meet God and to encounter God and to worship God. In the New Testament, we hear John, this same writer, say that Jesus took on flesh and he dwelt among them, meaning he tabernacled amongst them. Now, the tabernacle is not about a building or a place, but it's a person that all who place faith in Jesus will have presence and worship and forgiveness and joy and beauty and mercy and love by looking to Jesus with faith and with faith by his grace that's been extended. And now there's this point and this moment that's coming, he says, in the forever kingdom where we won't have to just have faith to believe in him. We'll see him and that he will be our God and that we will be his people. And he begins to talk about the effects of what this is like because of the king. And he says, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The only way that John can begin to explain this forever kingdom is actually by using the negatives. Because that's what we live in. We live in so much brokenness. He can't even describe, like, here's what it would be like. He just goes, you know what? How about we just begin to reverse everything that the curse brought in? And he says, you know what? Tears that are, that are brought will no longer be. He will wipe them away. Mourning and crying that are brought about by sin and destruction that we do ourselves and people do to us, that they will no longer be. Death and pain. He goes, there's going to be no more of that. That none of that will be in this new heavens and new earth and this kingdom forever. It, it was said that Adam and Eve, they had the possibility to sin, right? God says, if you do this, if not. They sin, leaving us with the inevitability that we would sin. That in the new heavens and the new earth, that there won't even be the opportunity of sin. That it won't even be in our hearts. We cannot even begin to fathom what that will be like, not just to live without the presence of sin, but to know there's nothing in our hearts that would even lean towards or be bent towards sin. He says, that day is what's coming because of the king. And the king and his kingdom. Well, John continues here in verse 5. It says, Behold, he who was, he who was seated on the throne um, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. Like almost because John's just looking like, hey, hey, write this down. Don't forget this. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And the Alpha and Omega, because most of us sit and grow up in Greek sorority and fraternity life, um, Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet, and then Omega is the end. And it doesn't sound as good to go, he is the A and the Z. Sounds way better. He's the Alpha and the Omega, all right? So we keep that translation there. The beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give uh, from the spring of water life without payment. The one who conquers 
will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Those, those, that's, you know what that's called? It's called good news. Here's why it's good news. When he says to the one who was thirsty, there is this picturing back to Isaiah 55, where it says, come to me, all who are thirsty. He goes, come buy, come eat, those of you without any money. Like, you know, you can't buy things without money unless you steal it, which is not buying. Just so you know. <laughs> but when God says, come buy without money, it's because he's providing, that he's extending his grace. We don't buy salvation. We don't earn salvation. Um, we, we don't inherit salvation. We are given this as a gift. And he says, all who are thirsty, meaning if you long for this and you long for this king, it's yours without even having to buy it because Jesus has already said it's done, it's finished. He did it in the cross and he did it through the resurrection. And he says, and all those who conquer, right? That's not that you in your own life, that you become this conqueror and you beat everybody up and now you're in heaven with a bunch of tough guys and whatever, right? Your chest bumping. No, no, no. The conquering there is those who actually held out in faith those who believed Christ in the midst of circumstances and trials and tribulations, those who hold it fast to the one who held fast to them, those are followers of Christ. And he says, to those who continue to rest their faith and their life in Christ Jesus, those will inherit the kingdom. Those will inherit this. And then he says this um, in the latter part of verse 7. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Going all the way back to where we started, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This loving father is looking at his son who he's always loved, guys. He's always loved. He didn't, Jesus didn't do anything for the father to love him. He just loved him. And in creating, desiring to share the intensity and the beauty of that love with us, God creates us. And this same father, in the midst and in spite of our sin, continues to pursue us. So now his son, who he's always loved, he gave. Willingly, Jesus comes to die. And be raised so that we, now by faith in Christ Jesus, in the context of a new world, as beautiful it is and great as it is, no back pain, all of that, we get to receive the very thing that God has always wanted for us. And that is to be with him and to be his children. And so we are sons and daughters adopted into the family of God by the blood of Christ that we may reign with him. That's good news. Amen? And Jesus, or John gives this warning now in conclusion. And the warning is this, and we didn't have the little girl read it this morning because it was just gonna, it was, it was, she was too cute to have to read this scripture. <laughs> but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, you guys get why we didn't have her read it, um, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. John First seven chapters is like, yes, yes, yeah. Wait, what's that? And he gets to the end of it and saying, here's the warning. That the warning is all of us are on the, we, we, we all are in verse eight. If there was, if you couldn't find your issue there, it's there. Just if, it, if John would have just kept writing, you'd be there. And he's saying, so this is not a, oh, those who do these things don't inherit. No, no, we've all done those things in some way or fashion. But what he's saying is if you never, never, never look at the king in this forever kingdom, you won't experience that kingdom. That if you don't enter in through the king and you don't see that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the one who came because he, he desperately desires, God says, it's not my desire that any shall perish in this second death. Because if it was his desire, way back then when Adam and Eve sinned, he could have said, I'm done with them. It wasn't his desire. How do you know? Because he sent Jesus. 
And he sent messengers of Jesus. He sent the Holy Spirit to say, listen, here's the warning. If you don't trust in Jesus, you get no kingdom. But if you look to the Son, to the Savior, all of it gets thrown in by faith. And so I implore you, if, you, if you've never trusted in Christ, don't look at your behavior and your actions as a means to get you in or get you out. This is not about good people versus bad people. This is about God's grace and those who receive it or God's grace and those who reject it. To say, can you follow? Can you trust? Can you at least look to this Jesus as he's inviting you into the king? And he's inviting you through the king to his kingdom. That what we long for in this world, the things we long for, will ultimately find their amen in Christ in this forever kingdom. You got to think of it this way. I can't conclude this message, this series, without saying something about C.S. Lewis. And so, what you notice when you read through the Chronicles of Narnia, what I love about it is, um, is that the two things that are consistent is Narnia and Aslan. No matter what story you're in, it's about the land and the king. And you see through the Bible, you have this Jesus the king and what he's doing to reconcile the world, to, for us to be with him by faith. And then you get to the very last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. You get to the very end of the story, and you have this, them longing and looking at the new Narnia, when Narnia is fully restored. Narnia is the kingdom forever, if we can use that, that language. And then they're trying to describe, like, what, why do I like, why, do, why is there something about me that longs for it? And finally, the unicorn, if you can remember, the unicorn's like, ah, oh, I get it, finally, at home, I'm, at last, I'm home, I love this place. He goes, this is what I've always been looking for, even though I didn't know it. And then he says this words. He says, the, the reason why we love the old Narnia so much, the reason why we love the new Narnia so much, is because it kind of reminds us of the old Narnia, which is beautiful and more truer. When we get to this promised forever kingdom, or when this kingdom comes to us, when we're able to see Jesus face to face and his love and his beauty and understand even more fully all that he did on the cross for us and fully all what he did for the, in the resurrection for us in our life and be able to be with him, there would be something about us that would go, oh, it is true, eternity was in our hearts. Now it's just realized in the face and the person of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Um, and then we'll be able to transition after our prayer into, into the Advent offering as we think about this forever kingdom and how we can live into it through Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for the grace of God and everything that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We are indebted, Lord, and yet the price we never have to pay. We thank you, Lord, that you don't separate the things that we long for in, in, in the physical and the material from the one in whom we long for in Christ. For Lord, it is your doing and it's your desire, it is your passion, it is your work through Christ to extend this grace to us, to see him and to follow him, to walk with him. That the kingdom is not really a kingdom without Jesus. And there's no way that we can see Jesus as king and understand him without living in the context of a new heavens and a new earth. We thank you for the cross as the inauguration and the means and the resurrection, Lord, that we may know you and follow you and be with you. God, we praise you and we lift up your name and we lift up the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the absolute love and supremacy of God as our Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.